Greetings, greetings. This is a redo. I um, I deleted that episode because when I listened to it, the audio was awful. So apologies to any of you listeners who endured that crackle-lackle. Um, uh, so I'm just going to redo it. <clears throat> um, so... I hope, well, I'm sure that the audio will be better this time. So here we go. Story time. Uh, it was the hurricane that changed everything. Before that, I believed everything was permanent. It's the thing that revealed my purpose, however disillusioned. After that storm, I became a crusader, though told no one. From that day into the next 50 years, my mission was clear. I was destined to save my family, to keep us together, no matter what. I can't know how things might have been different if I'd never witnessed its aftermath. I was upstairs that morning, in the bedroom I shared with two of my sisters. I could hear the grown-ups talking down in the kitchen, something about a hurricane. They were going on about some roof that had blown off the night before. It was my mother and father's voices I was hearing and either Minnie Mays or Eva Mays, one of the sisters who came during the week to help my mother with the house and kids, five of us by them. Donna was the new baby, born in May. We were living in St. Petersburg, Florida, about an hour from Granny and Poppy's. My dad worked at a nearby hospital, close enough to walk to if he cut through the alley behind our house. I should have been downstairs that morning, having breakfast with my siblings, instead of lingering upstairs. But it wasn't often that I had the room to myself. That morning, I'd been taking advantage, barefoot and still in my nightgown. We weren't allowed downstairs in the mornings in our pajamas. We were expected to show up for breakfast dressed for the day. Some rules made more sense than others. If I'd been downstairs that morning, Instead of upstairs, I could have seen my parents' faces when they spoke of the storm. I could have watched them and understood from their manner that everything would be fine, same as always. I would have nodded my head in agreement when I watched them say to each other how lucky we were that our house had been spared, how lucky we were that it hadn't been us. <clears throat> but I was a dreamy girl that morning, same as so many others. I'd been pretending I had a room of my own, walking across the sunlit floor, noting its warmth. I was doing twirls of my nightgown, raising my arms over my head, forming an O, pretending to be a ballerina. My reverie ended when I heard them speak of the roof, discussing how it had been blown clean off the night before while we'd been sleeping, deep in our dreams. What I was hearing made no sense. Roofs didn't just blow off of houses, cleanly or otherwise. The two things were connected, roofs and houses, houses and roofs. They were one thing, not two things. They didn't separate. They were the things that families lived inside of, intertwined. I could tell my parents believed what they were saying, same as Minnie Mae or Eva Mae did. They were convinced, all of them, that a roof really had gone missing, blown clean off the way they'd said. They believed it, but I didn't. And though it was forbidden, I decided to prove it. The bedroom faced the front of our house, overlooking the street. Beyond the room was a small porch accessed 
by a set of French doors. From the railing, if I stood on my tiptoes, I could see everything on our tiny street. There wasn't usually much action. Our neighbors were mostly retired. Mostly it was someone washing their car or pulling weeds in their garden. If I happened to be doing my spying when the mailman came by, I'd make a big deal of waving, hoping for a salute in return. I loved that porch. I especially loved sizing up the neighborhood from there. I had this idea that I'd witness something important one day and maybe get to tell about it on the evening news that my dad watched before supper. He wasn't the kind of father who made a big deal about seeing his kids after a long day at the hospital. Mostly, I watched my dad watch the news, something he'd always kept up with. I thought maybe I'd be on the news one day, and there he'd be, watching me. But something like that hadn't happened yet. It was easy getting out on the porch, a matter of turning a doorknob, though we weren't allowed out there without a grown-up. Sometimes, like that morning, I went out there anyway. I didn't walk out on the porch that morning because I believed what my parents were saying. I went out there because I didn't believe them. I wanted to see for myself that the roof was still there and that the house of my neighbors, home to the family inside, was the same as it had been the day before. I was five when the hurricane hit, too young to understand the intricacies of architecture, building codes, or the power of hurricane-level winds in the state of Florida. I hadn't yet realized that if physics allowed, roofs could sometimes take flight, lifting clean off its base the way they'd said. From the porch's edge, I could see that the house remained still intact, same as always. Everything was the same, minus the roof. What the grown-ups said turned out to be true but none of them had mentioned anything about what happened after. What I saw that morning is the thing that stuck with me, the thing that changed everything. I had no ability to process what I witnessed that morning. If I'd taken my parents' words at face value, had I not been curious enough to investigate on my own, it's likely I would have imagined the roof lifting off, clean like they said, and then drifting sideways like a flying saucer. I might not have given a thought to where it landed or if it landed at all. Maybe I would have imagined it in some cartoon, some kind of cartoon-like way involving four bluebirds, each taking a corner in their beaks and then flying away. No one said anything about the after, not my parents, not Minnie Mae or Eva Mae. Whatever they talked about had nothing to do with the hurricane. No one said a word about what remained. I shouldn't have broken the rules that morning in the ways that I did. Had I been more like my siblings and less like myself, it's likely I would have been spared. Until that morning, I hadn't realized that the tall trees that shaded our block could snap in half the way they did, as though they were baby twigs, not heroes that had survived 50 years of tropical storms. I didn't know they could topple and fall on top of each other, and then on the cars and boats parked in the driveways they'd long shaded. I hadn't realized that cars and pickups could bend like V's, front and back tires lifted from the ground. I had to remind myself that it was glass from shattered windshields I was looking at, not some kind of pirate's treasure sparkling in the sun. 
Odd-shaped pieces of wood were everywhere, some with fluffy cotton candy pink insulation hanging from its edges, blowing in the breeze. I didn't know that wood could look like paper, edges torn and jagged. I was used to the woodworking projects my grandfather made in his basement workshop, with its straight edges, smooth under my fingertips. The scattered shingles looked like the playing cards sometimes did when I practiced shuffling two decks at a time, the way my granny did when she played canasta. There were broken beams sticking out of the grass like javelins. The house that remained is the thing that scared me. It was disturbing, really, how undisturbed it looked. It wasn't completely gone, but it wasn't completely there either. Whatever happened the night before had happened quickly. Mostly, it was the wondering about what might happen next that scared me most of all. What if whatever was going to happen happened to us? I thought about the family and wondered if they were downstairs in their kitchen having breakfast too. I imagined them watching the stars from their pillows at night. I tried thinking of things that might make this okay, but I knew better. I was aware that sooner or later the rain would come. This is the thing that scared me, wondering what would happen when it did. Sneaking out that morning meant I couldn't share my concerns with my parents. It wouldn't have been my fear that concerned them. It would have been the fact that I'd been disobedient yet again. My actions would have been just another violation, further proof of my so-called rebellion. I wish I could have told them so they could have helped me understand. But the consequence of my confession wasn't worth it. I could have survived standing in the corner that morning or tolerated a spoonful of pepper on my tongue. But it was the look that my mother would have given my father that I wanted to avoid, the one that would have said, this is what I've been trying to tell you. It could have been simple, but it wasn't. Instead, everything changed. No one knew, nor could I tell them that the future of our family now depended on me. I would be the one to save us, to keep us together, no matter what. So I am, that just is sort of a, a you know, if you're, if you, if you look at a story as though you're building something, that is the base, that is the foundation, that is the beginning, because you have to establish a platform from which you then jump yourself off of. So um, I go back and forth in time. And so I'm jumping ahead here. <clears throat> After many, many, many pages, I'm jumping ahead. And I address that, um, that, that preoccupation that I had with keeping us together. So I come to this point. It says, luck and religion were completely intertwined in my family, like two streams combining to form a third stream. When something good happened or something bad didn't happen, it was hard knowing whether it was God or luck that saved us. Given our birthright, I believed we were lucky, though it felt like an unfair advantage. Thanks to our Catholic indoctrination, I believed that God was with us though his presence felt loaded and based on contingencies. Staying on his good side seemed tricky and heavily tied into the rules of our church. 
Growing up, our house contained as many shamrocks and leprechauns as it did crucifixes and statues of Mother Mary. It was hard even using the bathroom without some red-headed troll peering down from a shelf. Pictures of Jesus and various saints hung on the walls, some of them scarier than others. The religious art my parents favored skewed Catholic, which seemed heavy on melancholy and suffering. The Last Supper hung in our kitchen, and lifelike carvings of hands in prayer formation nestled between my mother's African violets in the bay window at the end of our table. None of the saints ever smiled. While my parents were loud about their collective allegiance to the Father and Son, little was said about the Holy Spirit. Superstition hung like a veil over our house, though my parents weren't keen on signaling its presence. The exception was a muted print hanging on the paneled back wall of our basement, the part of our house farthest away from anything else, written in old English-style script were the following words from ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord, deliver us. The print was the only suggestion that spirits even existed, though my parents' efforts at keeping them at bay made them seem more real than if they'd said nothing at all. Ouija boards were banned in our house, and makeshift seances trying to connect with the dead were outlawed as well. My parents were practical people and saw no reason to entice them, friendly or otherwise. Oddly, though, We were encouraged to be grateful for our guardian angels, who we were taught to believe were always around us. Spooks were as real as saints in our household, though their presence was never seen, only felt, and mostly avoided. Despite the reluctance to confirm or deny the existence of spirits, my parents nonchalantly revealed their technique for keeping them at bay. Regarding ghost-busting, Their method was simple, a matter consisting of a casual toss of holy water in the spook's perceived direction while telling them, with conviction, to be gone. Given my role as savior, I rehearsed their method long after sunset, dipping my fingers into a bucket of water I'd filled from the hose. I practiced until I moved like a samurai, coordinating my words with my actions, repeating them over and over adding the word please to the script I'd been given. Please be gone, I told them. Please be gone. Please be gone. Please be gone. During the final construction phase of the house we ultimately settled in, my dad was convinced that a ghost had been trapped in the attic when the roof was put on. He was specific about the ghost's location, which happened to be directly over the bed he shared with my mother. The attic accessed a full flight of stairs, spanned the entire top floor of our house. Like most attics, ours was filled with the usual clutter, holiday decorations, cast-off furniture, and out-of-season clothing, and so on. Being sent to the attic to retrieve a particular object could be tricky. Given its expanse, it was helpful having a general idea of where to look. Regarding coordinates, The ghost served as a buoy in the ocean of madness that was our attic. Portable fans were located behind the ghost. Christmas wrapping paper was stored in bins just before you got to the ghost. And extra blankets were kept in the cedar chest directly in front of where this particular ghost supposedly resided. 
Thanks to his mother, my father was afraid of the dark. My granny, Muriel Floride Davis Gorman, had a dark sense of humor and took pleasure in scaring my dad and younger siblings when they were little. A very tall, dark-skinned man named Homer McGee was walked past their house in the evenings on his way home from work, carrying a sack full of chickens over his shoulder. When my dad, three or four years old at the time, asked his mother what was inside the sack, she told him it was the heads of misbehaved children. Too young to pronounce the name correctly, my father developed a mortal fear of what he called the homagee, something his mother capitalized on. Granny's sadistic pranks included turning jack-o'-lanterns around at night, positioned on the ledge of Jerry's bedroom window, telling him that the homagee was on his way. It's likely that Granny was, all, was afraid of the dark also, given her merciless habit of keeping my dad and his brother Eddie up long past their bedtimes, playing cards on the nights their father worked late at one of his many second jobs. My father's fear of dark, my father's fear of the dark lasted a lifetime. My mother told me that during our summer visits to Pennsylvania, our fiscally conservative father kept every light in the house on during the nights that we were gone. The mixed messaging surrounding ghosts, God, and luck was confusing. As my family grew larger, so did my delusional status as self-appointed savior. I ramped up my four-leaf clover searchings, grazing through our yard on my hands and knees, sometimes bringing in three or more at a time. After filling a shot glass with water, I'd carefully arrange them before setting them gingerly on the windowsill above the kitchen sink. A mere ten paces from the front door, our kitchen, like so many others, was a family ground zero, the central hub from which all things tentacled. The clovers I gathered were my sacred offerings, totems symbolizing my devotion and dedication to the protection of all of us. My mission in those days was singular, though like a cat dropping a dead bird at the feet of their owners, I had no words either. Because of the weight I'd placed on my shoulders, I was unable to move with the same kind of ease I'd observed in my classmates. I need a sip of root beer. Okay, I'm back. I marveled at their free-spirited natures, preoccupied with none of the things that had taken hostage. Wait, rewind. I marveled at their free-spirited natures, preoccupied with none of the things that had taken hostage over my heart and mind. I wondered why they didn't seem to have the same kinds of preoccupation with thunder and lightning and of high-level winds and barreling rain that I did. I didn't understand how they didn't seem to care or even notice when the daylight shifted ever slightly in our classroom, when dark clouds formed out of nowhere, passing across the sun, casting ominous shadows over our desks. When lining up for recess, none of them seemed preoccupied by the cracks in the sidewalks that I went out of my way to so carefully avoid. Like the superstitious relatives who came before me, I whispered rabbit, rabbit, rabbit also, first thing in the morning on the first day of the month, hoping beyond reason for good fortune during the next 30 days. I was grateful for the horseshoes positioned like ewes that hung over our doorway, doorways, ready to catch the luck we hoped to receive. Things felt real, and yet they weren't real at all. 
There was no way to measure, to calculate, or anticipate the favor we would or wouldn't receive. Rainbows were especially favored, given the possibility of the retrieval of gold that the leprechauns kept in their pots at the bases just beyond our reach. Everything was possible, beyond the standard measure of proof. We were suspended, praying, hoping, wishing, believing, that somehow, given all the things stacked in our favor, God, religion, angels, saints, leprechauns, luck, dead relatives, the rosary, sacrifice, devotion, etc., that we would be okay. I believed only because the people I loved believed, simple as that. Some of the gold leprechauns, oh, hold on a second. Okay, I need to edit that. Protection is what I was after in whatever form I could get it. In my anxiety of filled imagination, I was an army of one, a solo green beret, stockpiling my arsenal in whatever ways I could. I was greedy, hoarding smooth white pebbles scavenged from Big Mary's long driveway, the ones we called lucky stones. Filling my pockets, I weighed myself down like a marine recruit in a boot camp survival challenge. To my underdeveloped way of thinking, more lucky stones equated with more luck, a quotient impossible to prove. Back then, I didn't see myself as a separate being, but one of the parts that added up to a sum total that was greater than the parts themselves. The luck I was after wasn't for me, but for us as a whole. It never occurred to me to divide and conquer. Somehow this was my battle and mine alone. While my sisters casually tossed their rabbit fur keychains in a desk drawer or closet, I clipped mine to the strap of my book bag, carrying my stash of lucky pennies safely inside, securing my strange rubber hand-me-down coin purse with its pronounced slit straight down its center. Though tarot cards were also taboo, somehow a magic eight ball found its way into our cinder block toy room next to the garage. I became quickly addicted, shaking it until the answer I believed I needed appeared in its small murky window. By then, I'd long been a seeker. The magic eight ball delivered concrete answers in a way that my nightly prayers couldn't. Thanks to the Mattel toy company, I had a new guru. While it was true that the eight ball was considered child's play, it was never a game to me. There was nothing fun about it. I developed uncomfortable rituals surrounding my new obsession, holding my breath until the response I wanted floated into view. My questions were very specific and always the same. Would we always be together? Would we always be safe? Though other answers in the affirmative existed, the only one I accepted was signs point to yes. I never asked my questions out loud and didn't breathe until that specific response finally appeared. Sometimes it took longer than others, my heartbeat picking up speed while the answers cycled through. Sometimes I'd be lightheaded by the time I got my answer, though I was committed to accepting only that particular one. My, ritual, my rituals were outside of the bounds of logic. Like most addicts, I hid my behavior, admitting to no one how hooked I truly was. I was in it for the buzz, that sweet feeling of relief that would wash over me when my answer finally appeared. 
Only then was I free, but only for a little while. Um, so I will continue. I think of the time I could have saved myself if I'd come clean that morning after the hurricane. It could have been simple, getting a lesson on how rare something like that really was, a roof completely detaching from its house in that way. In the 60 years I've lived since that storm, I've never once seen a house with its roof missing. I might have been given reassurances that everything would be okay, even the things beyond our control. I might have been spared years of escalating panic and time wasted on ridiculous time-consuming rituals I'd established in the name of keeping us safe and together. I wasn't a superhero that morning. I was a curious four-year-old, wanting a forbidden peek at the world beyond the bedroom I shared with my sisters. I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell anyone about what I'd witnessed because somehow I was aware, even then, that my position in my family was shaky and not guaranteed. Somehow I knew that my being among them, my mother and father, many brothers and sisters, was conditional. I don't know how to explain how I knew this. I only know that I did. Fifty years would pass before confirmation of this knowing revealed itself to be true. It was hard being at school when it rained, especially during storms when I could hear thunder beginning to rumble beyond the walls of my classroom. The Catholic school I attended seemed far away, requiring a long bus ride back and forth. I was sure that our house would be gone by the time school let out, taken away in the wind with my family inside. I started pretending to be sick on rainy mornings, something my medically trained parents saw through immediately, sending me out to the bus stop at my own peril. Convincing my teacher of my phantom illness was easier, and I'd get a pass for the nurse's office with minimal effort. Following protocol, the school nurse would promptly call my mother, informing her that I needed to be picked up from school. My scam succeeded only a couple of times before my mother and father realized I had some kind of problem that wasn't going away on its own. They still had no idea about my self-imposed role as family savior. Even though a few years had passed since then, I'd never admitted, my I'd, I never admitted to my infraction that morning and what I'd seen from the ledge of our porch. They didn't know that I knew what devastation looked like. I realize now that I'd been traumatized by what I'd witnessed, likely experiencing the effects of PTSD when the rain and its potential for harm began to fall. It wasn't school that I minded. I enjoyed being there when the sun was shining. It was the being away from home when the sky, as I saw it, filled with doom. Thanks to a consultation between my parents, teacher, principal, and school nurse, it was determined that a session with the school counselor was in order. Following a single visit to his small windowless office, the insightful counselor advised, advised my Catholic parents to withdraw me from parochial school and enroll me in Mapledale Elementary, the public school within view of our house. That my older sister stayed put, continuing to attend daily mass with the rest of the uniformed student population. I became Mapledale's newest transfer, a distinction that filled me with relief. 
The school was designed as an open campus, allowing me to keep an eye on our nearby home from most vantage points. <clears throat> I moved easily between my classroom, the cafeteria and library, and mostly the playground. I felt free knowing I could run home should the need ever arise. I never considered how I would actually harpoon us all in the event of a Category 5 storm. I just believed somehow that I would manage. Finally, I was able to get into a rhythm at school, to move in lockstep with my classmates. My fear of storm stayed with me. Being transferred changed none of that, though it gave me a feeling of control over the situation, something I so desperately needed. Like a ship captain peering through the lens of a telescope, I could easily assess conditions on the home front should the weather happen to shift. My role as savior, tiring though it was, remained intact as ever. Had there been further sessions with my Catholic school's resident therapist, perhaps some of this turmoil and my absurd management of it might have ended sooner than it did. By then I was clear on what my problem was which was that I had no problem as long as the sun was shining. Still, though, I told no one. A reprieve finally came, or so I believed, when my father accepted a research position at Eli Lilly, a pharmaceutical company headquartered in Indianapolis. Though I was satisfied with life at Mapledale, I didn't think twice about moving. I was familiar with the song, Little Green Apples, and especially the lyric that said, it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. I had no reason to believe that what I was hearing wasn't true. I believed it mostly because I wanted to. Being on high alert year-round was starting to take its toll on my young psyche. The possibility of no rain for an entire summer felt like a true respite, something my increasingly agitated spirit was happy to co-sign on. At that point, in my life, moving to Indianapolis was the best thing that ever happened to me. It wasn't long before I realized what a farce the song was, <clears throat> how untrue the popular lyrics actually were. No rain in the summertime in Indianapolis was complete bullshit. The movers had barely pulled out of our driveway before a late afternoon storm blazed through our new neighborhood. Steam rose from the street as heavy drops of rain made contact with the heat of the pavement. Thunder and lightning came in such quick succession, there was no opportunity to gauge the distance of the eye of the storm. Counting the seconds, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, was a fool's calculus. Had we been in the house long enough, I would have had the foresight to charge through the house like Paul Revere, yelling for everyone to take shelter in the basement. Instead, I was a wooden Indian, standing frozen before a window in one of the second-story bedrooms at the back of the house. Room assignments hadn't been made yet, so there was no possibility for shelter on my twin bed, hiding beneath a, hiding beneath a pillow pressed over my ears. Some savior I was. Instead, I was fully panicked, wildly afraid of the telephone poles that ran along 71st Street, the busy commuter road just beyond the confines of our unfamiliar backyard. I was sure that their suspended wires would attract the fast-approaching lightning, resulting in an explosion that would cause the telephone poles to fall, timber-style, directly onto the bullseye of our roof, destroying us all. Crouching beneath the window, during the peak of that hellish storm, 
I acknowledged the truth of what I'd been hiding, if only for myself. Finally letting the revelation wash over me, the fact that I wasn't a savior at all, but a rising second grader hunched beneath a window, covering my ears with my hands. In those rumbling moments, behind tightly closed eyes, I let myself see the truth of it all, that something had to give. Had my fear been more pedestrian, something simple like being afraid of the dark, the solution would have been more straightforward and obvious. Night lights were commonplace in the bedrooms of the very young. Outrunning the weather wasn't practical or even possible. When the storm passed, as quickly as it had arrived, a mellow twilight unique to summer took over the sky. I stepped out onto the sidewalk, wanting to get a feel for the land beyond our suburban front door. My new school, the one I'd be, the one I'd be attending at summer's end, was nowhere in sight, of course. There would be no free and easy feeling come fall, when I'd once again be behind the gates of a place that left me feeling far from home. I understood that once Labor Day was over, I'd no longer have the luxury of status reports throughout my day. I had no way of knowing that my home and family would still be there when I returned from school in the afternoons. Feeling gypped, I regretted the upbeat attitude I'd had about leaving Cincinnati and especially my life at Mapledale. I knew that resisting the move would have changed nothing, that it would have happened anyway despite my misgivings, but it was the false pretenses I'd subscribed to, letting myself believe in that stupid song about it not raining in Indianapolis in the summertime. Because of that song alone, Oh, because of that song alone, I was okay with all of it and leaving everyone and everything I knew behind. Thanks to those ridiculous lyrics, I let myself believe what I wanted to believe, that I was going to a place where I'd be free from worry and panic, at least for a little while. But now here I was, stuck in Indianapolis, surrounded by strangers, bound to a school that was nowhere in sight. Thanks to the song, though, and the growing resentment I felt toward it, I decided I was tired of being afraid. I'd grown weary of trying to fight the natural forces that I had absolutely no control over. Instead of being sad, I made the decision to be mad instead. I was mad at the song and loved to talk about how much I hated it to whoever would listen. I was mad at the person who wrote it, the person who sang it, and mad at the DJs who played it in heavy rotation on the radio. The song was a lie. And as far as I was concerned, the more people who knew it, the better. I was clunky in my defiance, developing a strange new alliance with the rain. I started paying attention to weather reports instead of going out of my way to avoid them, as I'd done for so long. If rain was in the forecast, I planned my outfits around my new favorite accessory, a clear plastic dome umbrella, currently in vogue. I lobbied hard for the kind of go-go boots Marlo Thomas wore on her TV show, That Girl. I wanted to be that girl, too, and imagined myself walking defiantly to the bus stop under my dome. I wanted to look like I didn't give a damn about the rain. I thought the go-go boots would help. Instead, I was stuck with a pair of hand-me-down rubber galoshes meant to be worn over my sneakers. Instead of a snazzy new rain slicker, the kind Marlo wore that belted at the waist, I trudged up to the bus stop looking like the Gordon's fisherman on the box of fish sticks my observant mother served us on Fridays. 
Still, I was determined not to go backwards and carried on with my mission. When my allowance built up, I blew it on my very first record, a 45 of a song that came out not long after Little Green Apples. Raindrops keep falling on my head became my new anthem. As far as I was concerned, my scaredy cat days were behind me, miraculously replaced by a new breed of junkyard dog. I think that's enough story time for now. Um, I will, you know, I will do other excerpts at another time. Um, so let's see. I guess I will say farewell. Have a good one. Until we meet again, YOLO.